So a chaplain and a social worker came and got my husband from the room that my mom and dad were now in with him. Mm-hmm. And they walked him down this long hallway and he was certain that they were taking him to tell me that I had died. Yeah. And they walked him into this tiny closet. And I think it was because it was right next to the OR. And my OB came in and like with blood all over her and was like, your baby is fine. He's doing well. Kaylee is not. She had an amniotic fluid embolism. We're doing everything we can to try to save her life. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Team. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. Happy Monday, everyone. I cannot believe that this is the last podcast episode of 2021. We're taking a week off next week, but I'll be back fresh with a new episode for you in the new year. I know it sounds cliche, but it feels like just yesterday that I even started this podcast. And to think I've now wrapped up a whole nother year of episodes is pretty mind boggling for me. I'm so thankful that you guys are here with me each week, tuning in and telling your friends to check out the show. Since the beginning of 2021, our monthly listens have doubled and slowly but surely we're rising on the charts, which means more and more expecting mamas are naturally finding the Mommy Labor Nurse podcast and benefiting from all the pregnancy, birth and postpartum stuff we talk about here each week. It seriously warms my heart, you guys. As for this week, I'm sharing a super heartfelt but incredible story to wrap up the year. Kaylee Summers joined me to share the story of her son's birth. Kaylee went in for what she anticipated to be a routine induction to meet her son, only to suffer an incredibly rare complication known as an amniotic fluid embolism right as she was beginning to push him out. Amniotic fluid embolisms happen in approximately 1 in 100,000 births. The infant survival rate is only about 70% and the maternal survival rate is somewhere between only 30 to 50%. Yeah, basically everyone's worst nightmare here. Luckily, Kaylee is here to tell her story today of being an AFE survivor, and I'm honored I had the opportunity to sit down with her and share it with you guys. Let's hear from Kaylee. So tell me, are you one of an estimated 80% of pregnant women that's hoping to give birth without an epidural? I hate to break it to you, but simply wanting it might not be enough. After the unmedicated birth of my first son, Walter, I knew I had to create an affordable online birth class designed just for moms that wanted to do the same. And that's how Birth It Up, the natural series was born. Learn more about how to make your dream of a natural hospital birth a reality at mommylabornurse.com slash natural birth. You can totally do this and we can help. Hi, Kaylee. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today with me. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Can you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, 
family, what you ate for breakfast, anything you want to share? <laughs> sure. Absolutely. I'm originally from South Jersey, New Jersey. We like cool. to really delineate between the North and South in Jersey. Really? Okay. So <laughs> that's what I've heard because my parents yeah. are both from New Jersey. Now I can't, now you're going to quiz me and I don't, and I don't remember, I won't. but I won't one of them, you. okay. <laughs> one of them is from Central Jersey. One of them is from North Jersey. And they're also very particular about where they're from. I was born in New Jersey, but I moved here when I was five. So I consider myself from North Carolina, but that's funny that you say that because my parents literally always say that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So where the South Jersey area, our city is Philly, Philadelphia. Uh So got it. I now live in Pennsylvania and I am a licensed social worker and I work as a therapist at a boarding school. So I actually live and work here. And as we'll talk about in the episode, I'm an AFE survivor and I have created some social media communities around that and birth trauma, which has become a really big interest and passion of mine. I'm sure. Yeah, I know. I, I just love your stuff on, and I love that you're really blowing up on TikTok too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it's an inter- interesting world over there. It's a very interesting world. It's a very, very interesting yeah. world. I kind of use TikTok as a, like Instagram is my main dynamic, but I kind of, you know, will post some of my videos over there and the audiences are very different. It's a younger yeah. crowd and it's just, they're not afraid to say some things and it's no, just, they are not. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I love it. All right, Kaylee, well, we are going to talk today about all of that and do a birth story. So usually what I tell people to do is go back way far to the beginning. And, you know, if you let's talk about like getting pregnant and if you had any troubles to conceive or any losses at that time or anything, feel comfortable sharing. Of course. Yeah. So we first started trying and we actually very luckily were able to get pregnant pretty much the first or second month that we tried. Unfortunately, it did end in a miscarriage. I believe it was considered a chemical pregnancy. So I got a positive and then a few weeks later, it was no longer. Then after that, we really struggled, which I did not expect given that we had gotten pregnant so easily. And so I'm just someone who I feel like I know my body really well. And I know they, they tell you to like wait a year or wait a certain amount of time. And I just, I was tracking my cycles and I knew something was wrong. Like I wasn't ovulating, something Mm -hmm. was off. And so I went to my regular doctor, they tested me and they decided I probably wasn't ovulating or it was delayed or something was up. So they sent me to a fertility clinic. This was about five months after that initial miscarriage. And we met with an RE, a reproductive endocrinologist and we started the process of fertility treatments. And by that, I just mean I was waiting for my next cycle, for my period to come so that they could start all the blood work that needed Mm -hmm. to be done from cycle day one. And of course, very, very, very luckily, we got pregnant that month. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so I think my cycles just sort of had lined back up after the miscarriage and we got pregnant with my son. Cool. So about six months later. Yeah. That's common. Unfortunately, that secondary infertility where you, well, I guess technically they call it secondary infertility is when you've had a birth. And now the second time after post-birth, you know, you have trouble getting pregnant the second time, but yeah, I think I've heard that, that it's, it's very common to have a loss and then it takes your body kind of a few months. I think it's like either 
that happens or you end up getting pregnant very, very soon after your loss because your body's already like, oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've seen that too. From there, we were pregnant and everything was really smooth with my pregnancy. I really didn't have any concerns. The only hiccup was that I had tested as a carrier for cystic fibrosis. Okay. And so there was that really, really uncomfortable two week period where you have to wait for your partner to get tested and see if they also carry it. Yeah. Gratefully, he does not, he's not a carrier. And so we were okay, but that was probably the most stressful time in the pregnancy. But then, yeah, everything was quite smooth all the way up through 40 weeks. So I was, no, no issues with like, you didn't have a really rough first trimester, morning sickness, like all I of that had, stuff. Some, I had morning sickness, but I would, yeah. I would say pretty like very manageable. Went to work yeah. every day. Fine. Just yeah. needed some like carbs in the morning to get me through. Yeah. So it sounds like a pretty like smooth pregnancy. You didn't have any high risk complications that you knew of at all. No, no. My only concern, well, I had concerns just in general that I'll get to, but I was very large. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And again, I know my body really well. And I was like, my baby is huge. Mm -hmm. And everyone was kind of like, oh, you're measuring right on track. Like everything looks good. And I was like, that's all fine. But my baby is huge. Yeah. You just Um, knew. (laughs) Yeah. And they were like, okay, well, we'll see what happens. You know, (laughs) like, no, I know. Um, Trust me. Yeah. Like, like I'm telling not, you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So leading up to 40 weeks, I want you to go into detail. Like that day, did you go into labor? Were you induced? Like kind of leading up to, to those days of going into the day that you give birth. Yeah. So I remember I had an OB appointment on the Thursday. It was a Thursday. I was, I think, 39 and or something like that. And I was really upset. I cried on the phone to my mom after because I was, there was no, I was not a face at all. I was dilated and I was huge. And I was just, you know, the typical thing that sort of, you're over it. You're like, I'm done. Tap, tap out, man. (laughs) Yes. I'm like, this is, I'm done. And so I remember I got my nails done the next day to like, try to make myself feel better and distract myself. I mentioned that because it's actually in my last memory. So everything that I tell you from that day forward is pieced together from memories of the people around me. So that Monday, so four days later, I went into the office again for another OB appointment. So I was 40 weeks and two days. I had some high blood pressure readings and they did one at the beginning and one at the end of the appointment. And they were both quite high. And their protocol is, of course, after 40 weeks that you need to go to triage and just see what's up. So we went to the hospital that day. And my blood pressures did even out a little bit, but I was already past 40 weeks and I was offered an induction. At that point, I wasn't like, yes, I definitely want an induction. Yeah. But weighing my risks and benefits, I was like, I think an induction is a good idea at this point. Really concerned about the size of the baby, just myself. And so we went through with the induction Mm -hmm. and I was like starting from zero. So they used Cervidil overnight for a cervical ripener. Mm-hmm. And so that was over Monday night. And then Tuesday, they put in a bully bulb. And then I got an epidural and Pitocin. So I got Pitocin Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. And shortly after that, I got an epidural. I had a really tough time managing the pain. I was having contractions that were about two minutes apart and sort of like one on top of another. 
So I was having a lot of trouble managing on my own. And so I chose an epidural, which I felt really good about that decision. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And that's common with, as people know, with Pitocin, that sometimes you have those kind of erratic, like on top of each other kind of contractions and you try to titrate it appropriately, but sometimes they just come and come and come and come. So, yeah. 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 So finally by Wednesday morning, I was 10 centimeters at like 1130 AM that morning. I had finally gotten to 10 centimeters. And by 12, my OB had come in. And this was an OB that I had not met before. She had come on shift at 7 AM. And so this is the first time that I was meeting her. And she told me that my nurse would get me ready to push and that we were going to meet my baby finally. And I was exhausted because it had been a long, a long two days. So at that point, she left the room to go get ready. And my nurse is about to start teaching me to push. And I turned to her and I said, I'm not feeling well. And she said, yeah, that's normal for transition, which is correct. And she went to go get me a bag to be sick in. And I said, no, something's really wrong. And then I proceeded to scream that something was wrong with my heart. Mm -hmm. And before she could do anything, I collapsed. And I went into cardiorespiratory failure. So my heart stopped and I stopped breathing. And at this point, it was just my husband and my nurse in the room. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So immediately she hit the code blue alarm and my husband was like up in my face, yelling at me to try to get me to wake up. And then he ran into the hallway and yelled for a doctor as the code blue alarm was going off. And so tons of people came rushing in. A code blue on LND is obviously not common. No, Um, (laughs) no, not common at all. Like, I mean, I was talking to you before the episode and like your story, what happened to you is literally our worst nightmare. I mean, it's not anything, anything that anybody in the room when somebody's having a baby wants to have to deal with. Yeah, for sure. So everyone came streaming in. They probably had me disconnected to everything and out of the room in under a minute. My husband remembers them shouting, like, do we have a pulse? Yeah. We're taking you to OR1. No, OR1 is taken. We're taking you to OR2. When your nurse was there and you f- said that you didn't feel well, had you just started pushing at that point or were you... I, I was not started yet. Okay. I was just, got I it. was just complete. Yeah. I was just complete. Okay. So they were prepping me to push. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Did you feel, I mean, other than being uncomfortable and you're in labor, I mean, there's, yeah. is there any sort of, and I know you said you're, you don't have memory of this, but yeah. were there any sort of signs before that all of a sudden switch? The only thing that I have had, and that this is something that is, that has been seen in other AFE survivors, Mm -hmm. who knows, it's kind of like a, is this actually because of the AFE or not? We'll never know. But a lot of us have really uncomfortable feelings about going to labor. So I had a lot, there's text messages and text messages of me texting my best friend about hemorrhaging and just being terrified of hemorrhaging for no reason. I mm-hmm. wrote it in my pregnancy journal. I wrote it, you know, and I don't want to scare <sighs> moms. Chills. <laughs> I know. And I don't, I know yeah, that people no. get anxious when they of are course. pregnant and of course, this is different, but it is really difficult to tell the difference. So I know yeah. it freaks a lot of people out. That's not my goal at all. Yeah. This is definitely different and, and very, very rare, which I know yeah. we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So let's go back to them wheeling you into the OR at this point. Obviously the main goal is to get you back alive and also get baby out too. Yeah. So the 
best resuscitative measure for mom, if you're not able to get her back within like four minutes is to get the baby out. Yeah. So not only is it about baby, but it's best for mom too. So they actually got my son out within six minutes of my code. So within six minutes of when that code was called, Cal was delivered via a C-section. And so that absolutely, without a doubt, saved his life. He did really well. His first app was like a three. And then he was up at an eight and a nine at five and 10 minutes. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. He bounced back very, very well. Yeah. So once he was delivered, CPR was continuing on me. So he, so CPR was being done on me while he was born. It continued towards the end of the C-section and my OB specifically remembers it was really hard to stitch me up because my body was shaking so much from the CPR. And with AFE, typically it's a two-phase response. So you have the cardiorespiratory failure and then you have DIC, which is bad. Yeah, not good. It's referred to as death is coming by anesthesiologists is what I've been told. I know you know this, but just for people listening, it's basically when your body clots all over the place, consumes all of your clotting factors, and then you bleed out. Yeah. Um, It's like clot, 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 clot. Oh wait, actually I've clotted too much. And now I'm just going to bleed and I'm going to bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed. And it's not just something that we see in AFE. It can happen in a lot of other sort of pregnancy complications and it doesn't happen commonly. Like it's not like you should be afraid of getting DIC, but there's usually a cause for it, like infection. Like we see it a lot with moms who they have like a retained plus a really bad retained placenta, or they have a stillbirth and the, you know, it's, it's something with that or preeclampsia obviously or trauma. Yeah. But yeah, it's not just definitely not just something that happens with AFE. Yeah. Yeah. So they were preparing for that. So my OB had already made the decision that more than likely this was an AFE. Actually, I hadn't started bleeding yet, but they prophylactically put in a bakery balloon into my uterus to try to stem the bleeding. Yeah. And for those who don't know what a bakery balloon is, it's basically like a tampon device. So basically, I mean, if you think about what a tampon does in your vagina, it holds pressure and it absorbs things. The bakery doesn't absorb anything, but the bakery is like this big balloon that we put inside the uterus and it helps to just like hold pressure. So there's not a crazy amount of bleeding. Yeah. And so within probably like 20 minutes, I was bleeding and I was bleeding heavily. Yeah. They collected five liters through the Bakri balloon alone in like less than an hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. And with DIC, you bleed out of everywhere. So I'm, you know, bleeding out of all of my lines. So they had put in mass transfusion lines. They already, they had preemptively called a mass transfusion protocol before I even started bleeding. And they had put in central lines in both my subclavican arteries. And then at this point, they were also realizing that my heart and lungs weren't recovering in the way that they should have been. And I actually coded again. Yeah. I wanted to get the time frame right. So you obviously don't remember, but do you know how long your heart stopped? They got you back. And then you're saying it happened again. Yep. So about eight or nine minutes the first time. So shortly after they closed me from the C-section, they were able to resuscitate me about an hour later, which I think it had to do with the bleeding when it happened the second time. And just like the instant, I was hemodynamically very unstable, unstable. And so that was only about three or four minutes that I was down for that time. Okay. And so again, at this point, they're just realizing that they're not really able to stabilize me. And so they made a call for ECMO 
And this hospital was a trauma too, but they didn't have access to ECMO. So they called over to their medical center, which is only about 30 minutes away. And they ambulanced in ECMO with an ECMO team. Oh, wow. Yeah. To put me on ECMO. So that happened about two and a half hours after the initial code, I was on ECMO. And while they were doing that, or shortly after they got me on ECMO, they took me down to interventional radiology to try to embolize my uterine arteries, which Mm -hmm. would hopefully stop the bleeding um, or at least slow it down. Yeah. And that's something that that's like, we do that right before we do a hysterectomy. That's like the last ditch effort to not have to do a hysterectomy is to basically take something and like cauterize that artery to make sure that it's not bleeding anymore. Yeah, exactly. And so on the other, I mean, I guess I should say on the other side of this that's happening in the OR, my family all happened to be at the hospital because I was already 10 centimeters. So my husband was in the room. My mom was actually in the room and we had just asked her to be in the room for the birth, which was not the plan. I actually went back to my husband and was like, I'm shocked that you, cause I don't remember this. I'm like, I can't believe how did I talk you into that? Like, how did you allow this to happen? <laughs> and he was, he was just like, I needed another support person. It had been a long two days, yeah. but she had left the room to go talk to my dad in the waiting room and tell him. And as she was in the waiting room, the code blue was called for my room. Oh my gosh. And so she tried to get back and they were like, no. Like yeah. you cannot go back there right now. And she's like crying. And of then of course, yeah, she's yeah. freaking out. Yeah. And then my best friend showed up and my dad had to tell my best friend, like, we don't know anything, but they're not okay. We don't know who's not okay, but you know, something, something. awful is happening. Do you know if your husband knew, I mean, he knew something was wrong, but did he know that your heart had stopped and they brought you, or did he know that after the fact? I don't think he knew. Anything. Yeah, like he just he knew, knew something like something awful was happening. Yeah. yeah. I give my team credit because what I'm expressing right now is probably only within like 10 or 15 minutes yeah. that this is happening. So a chaplain and a social worker came and got my husband from the room that my mom and dad were now in with him. Mm-hmm. And they walked him down this long hallway and he was certain that they were taking him to tell me that I had died. Yeah. And they walked him into this tiny closet and I think it was because it was right next to the OR and my OB came in and like with blood all over her and was like, your baby is fine. He's doing well. Kaylee is not. She had an amniotic fluid embolism. We're doing everything we can to try to save her life. And before the DIC started, things looked, I don't want to say they looked good, (laughs) but they looked like I was going to like stay at that hospital in the ICU and hopefully be transferred there soon. And then 20 minutes later, my doctor came back to my family. And the only thing that she could say was, we can't stop the bleeding. We need you to pray. Like we're, wow. we don't know what we're going to do. Wow. Oh, that's heavy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I know at this point, the ECMO team had gotten there. Are they saying now that they want to transfer you somewhere else? So at this point, they weren't sure. So at this point, I'm just yeah. sort of, I'm in limbo. I'm, yeah. I guess technically I would say once you're on ECMO, you can't stay at a hospital that can't maintain ECMO. Right. So they knew I was going to be transferred out. But at this point, like my family, I don't like, no one really knew what was happening except for I was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And you were still bleeding just as, just as heavily. Yeah. And it's tough because from what I understand with an AFE, and you probably can speak to this better than I can. I mean, you have to, obviously you need to get baby out. That's the first intervention. And then after that, 
you just kind of have to keep the person alive until your body heals itself. And so you just have to keep cycling blood. If you're going into DIC, you have to keep giving blood. You have to keep giving fluids. You have to keep giving blood pressure medication to keep that. And it's like, you just kind of have to keep going until your body gets the idea that, okay, it's time to stay alive now, or you don't. Right. So I needed 143 units of blood product. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was insane. And most of that, so that was like my whole, I think that was like my total stay, but 130 of that was just in that, in that immediate period hours. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying, okay. So let's do, you probably have done this math, but let's do math. So there's about 45, like let's say 5,000 liter or 5,000 milliliters of blood in your body, like normally. So a blood unit is about 350 ish. Mm-hmm. Let me get my calculator. So how much, let's see, 5,000 divided by 350, 14. Oh, that's a lot of blood. Like that's just a lot of your body continuously. Like you're giving blood in, yeah. it's putting it out. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I will say I had a very severe case of DIC because they do vary even with AFEs and how severe your DIC was. And yeah. mine was definitely on the severe end. And you're right. Like they can't really, you can't do anything else. There's no reversal for AFE. So no, all you there's no medication. Is, there's nothing. No. You can just keep them alive. That's yeah. all. Yeah. I get frustrated because I think like there's so many things, right. But like care is of course one of them, but a lot of it is pure luck. And I'm yeah. not, not discounting my amazing care, but yeah. I'm saying that another woman could get the same amount of amazing care, maybe somehow even better care and still yeah. die. Yeah. And that's totally. what's so frustrating about AFEs for me. It's so frustrating. And there's not been a lot of them. So it's hard to exactly from what I understand, it's hard to study what actually happens or like, what are some risk factors that we know, or like what, you know, what are some good treatment methods? Cause it, cause they're so rare and you can't really, it's not good measurable data. It's not, it's not. And it's a diagnosis of exclusion. There's no diagnostic test. So now we also have the subjectivity of that too. Yes. Yes. I know. I wish there was some kind of marker. You would think like, I know there's some kind of marker that they can test you for during your pregnancy and you're, you know, kind of like breast cancer is with the burger. It's like, you're more likely to have this. Yeah. But then again, even if you do that and you find it during pregnancy, what can be, there's no way to prevent it either. Mm -mm. It's just something that randomly happens. I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to your story and you're saying you're on ECMO at this point, your team is telling your family just to pray and just to hope that your body eventually stops bleeding. Yep, exactly. And then, so I believe what happened is the, and I forgot to mention this part too. They did put in a Roboa catheter in through my femoral artery, which they inflate it when there's a mm-hmm. lot of bleeding it goes into the aorta, I believe. And they inflate it to try to stem bleeding. They mm-hmm. never ended up inflating it for me, but they had put it in during my second code in case they needed to. And then they took me down to IR and I think IR somewhat helped with the bleeding, but nowhere near enough to keep me alive. And so they went into my husband and asked him to sign for a possible hysterectomy and X-lab. So mm-hmm. I wasn't stable enough when they took me down to IR to open me up again. But once they got me into IR, they felt like they didn't have a choice. They had to open me or else I would die. So they opened me up vertically for an X lab. 
And they actually had a gynecological oncologist do it because they knew it was going to be like insanity in there. And they're very good at just knowing the organs and two trauma surgeons as well helped. Wow. And so when they opened me up, they did find another like five or six liters of blood um, wow. just in my abdomen. Yeah. Wow. They had to do a hysterectomy. They took out one of my ovaries and they were able to save one ovary. And then they packed my entire abdominal cavity with quick combat gauze Mm -hmm. and left me open because they knew they were going to have to continue to go back in. Yeah. Wow. So at this point, by the time that surgery was over, it was about 8 p.m. So this had been like over the course of eight hours. And they went in and they spoke to my family and they said they were going to transfer me. And before I was transferred, they would have the opportunity to see me. And so my family did get to see me before I was transferred to the medical center. And they like gave them all of the warnings possible. They were like, yeah. she's not even going to look like herself. She's going to look heavier than she was when she was pregnant. Like, yeah. yeah Cause you've had so prepared. much fluid and your body is just like, no, exactly. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. All right, the sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. So this Birth It Up Baby is from Megan, and Megan says, Hello, I just want to say thank you so much for your course. I watched the Birth It Up Natural series in case it went quick for my second baby, and that's exactly what happened. Go figure. (laughs) I was so prepared like I had never been for my son. You're wonderful at what you do, and your voice is so therapeutic. Oh, thank you. Sometimes I feel like my voice, you know how like you hear your voice back and you're like, I sound weird. Sometimes I feel like that about my voice. But if you guys say it's good, then great. (laughs) Awesome. She said, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So if you want to check out Birth It Up, the natural series, that's the course that she took. You can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the natural series and you can learn more. All right. Let's get right back into this week's episode. So how was that meeting? You obviously don't remember it, but from speaking with your family and your husband, do you know what they were thinking at this point or any, anything that happened at that meeting? Yeah. So I know the trauma surgeon came in and talked to my family and I have, I have notes from my family that said like, it was the first time that they had any hope that I would at least just survive. Okay. I, at this point kind of thought like, when I look back on my story, I thought like, Oh, I was like fine at that point then not realizing how intense it is to be on ECMO and how that is like, you're still kind of dying when you're on ECMO, if you're not getting better. Yeah. So they felt like they had at least just like a sliver of hope that I could potentially survive this. And when they saw me, it was in a hallway and there was about like 20 or 30 medical professionals around the front of my bed. My husband came up to me and he said, I always get teary when I think of this. He said, you did such a good job. Like Cal is doing great. And the people that were around my bed were all crying. All of the medical professionals were crying. And so, yeah. Just a really beautifully intense, awful moment for yeah. my family. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. I can't imagine being your husband and being yeah. there when it actually happened, and then over the course of a few hours, now coming and looking at his wife and mm-hmm. seeing her in this condition. I mean, it's tough to say, like, thank goodness that your baby was okay, but I, I mean. I guess at least he had that 
to hang on to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, you had this meeting with your family and your husband, Mm -hmm. you know, they had kind of regrouped a little bit. And at this point, did you guys, did they decide that they were going to transfer you? Sorry, this was after your hysterectomy? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So at this point, did they decide that they were going to transfer you to a different facility? Yeah. So this was they when they came in to meet with my family after the X lab and hysterectomy at like eight or nine o'clock, they told yeah. them they were transferring me. Yeah. And then when they saw me, I was being wheeled out to be transferred. Okay. So yeah. So they transferred me to the medical center that could maintain the ECMO circuit and just had like a cardiothoracic yeah. ICU that I could yeah. be in. Yeah. Gotcha. And how far was that hospital? Only 30 minutes. Okay. Which was that's very good. Lucky. Yes. Yeah. That's not bad at all. Yeah. So then when I got there early that morning at like four or 5 a.m., my amazing cardiologist at that hospital, Lincoln All Medical Center, went to my mom and my husband, who were the ones who came with me and stayed overnight in the waiting room and said, listen, we've tried every medication under the sun. We can't get her heart to pump in the way that it should be. So ECMO was keeping me alive, right? But you still need the heart to actually recover. Yeah. And it was not. And they said, this is kind of, we're going to try an impella, which is like a tiny heart pump that they put in through your femoral artery into your heart. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our last ditch effort. And if that doesn't work, she's, you know, she's, her heart's going to clot and she's going to die. Yeah. And so they put that in and this is early, early, early Thursday morning. So they put that in. And I had another surgery that morning to just go back in, restitch, clean out the blood, the clots, all that. And then I was kept open. And then by Friday, the next day, the impella was working so well that by Friday night, I had the impella and all of the ECMO circuits taken out. At first, they were just taking, they were just going to take me off of the lungs ECMO and mm-hmm. keep me on the ventilator. Mm-hmm. But when they clamped both the heart and lungs, I did really well. So they just took it all out. Yeah. So I was only on ECMO for like two days. That's great. Yeah. The Impala really worked quite well for me. That's amazing. So at this point, was your family much more hopeful that things were going to be okay? My family was much more hopeful that I would be alive. They were really concerned about the state that I would be in, given how long I had been down for and being on ECMO and all of that. And my mom remembers, I was under the impression that I was just like out for this whole time. Like there was no nothing. But like on Thursday, they would like wake me up from sedation and like make me do commands and I would follow them while on ECMO. And at one point on Thursday evening, I was like out of sedation a little bit. And they asked if I knew that my mom was in the room and I shook my head. Yes. So my mom was like bawling. Of course. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So everything looked good, but my family, like for my brain, but my family was kind of like, how do you recover from that and not have any neurological deficit? Yeah. So I went in Thursday, Friday, and Saturday morning to the OR for them to open me back up, fix everything, all of that. And then I was off ECMO on Friday. Saturday night, they extubated me. So my ventilator was taken out Saturday night, which was another sort of shuffle of like, mm, should we take her off of it? Should we yeah. not take her off of it? You know how yeah. it goes. Yeah. And so they did take me off. I don't have any memory of any of that, thankfully. And then 
Sunday, I met Cal for the first time five days after he was born. I was going to ask when, yeah. when that meeting was, because he, like you said, it sounds like he did pretty well. So did he have to go to NICU or anything after? So he went to NICU at my original hospital for one night. Okay. So my dad stayed with him okay. while my mom and my husband came with me. And then he was transferred to be with me at my hospital that next day. Yeah. I have to ask too, how big was he? 10 pounds, 14 ounces. Oh, so you were right. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. I told when I, I, was I, like, told I told all of you. <laughs> That is pretty darn yeah. big. I yeah. I think that's about the biggest baby that I've, I mean, we've had a couple 11 pounders, not any yeah. 12 pounders that I've heard of, but I mean, I've been a part of plenty of 10 pound, but 10, 10 pounds and like some higher ounces. That's pretty rare, but that's yeah. a pretty chunky baby. <laughs> yes. He was Aww. very chunky. Yeah. Oh, how sweet. So mm-hmm. I'm assuming that you don't remember that meeting on Sunday at all. I don't, I don't remember that meeting. We have great videos of it, which I really appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, I'd really sad. We actually also have videos of my CTICU team. My nurses cannot say enough wonderful things about them. They had my baby on me skin to skin the day after my AFE. I was on ECMO. Go go some ICU nurses. (laughs) I know. (laughs) They were phenomenal especially because they're not postpartum nurses yeah oh they probably love it they were like there's a baby yeah Yeah. oh and they like sat down and explained to my husband who was freaking out about like listen she's she's got lines she's on ECMO she's like you can't put a 11 pound baby on her and they were like yeah we can and we're going to because these are the reasons why it's really good for her and the baby and the baby oh my gosh oh my gosh so at this point I do want to know when your memory started to come back Monday Monday was the first memory I have. Yeah. So the first memory I have is of my OB and my anesthesiologist from my code Mm -hmm. coming to visit me and sitting down with me and telling me exactly what happened. Because up until that point, I had been like, so what's going on? Yeah. My family's like, oh, you had some C-section complications because they were just like, how the heck are we going to tell her what happened? Oh, um, oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but you're right. You have no, you had no idea what, what went on and nobody no. can really kind of explain it to you until your doctor comes in and explains it to you. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess like family members can and have, yeah, but yeah. they were yeah. super they were appreciative yeah. that my OB was like, Hey, I'll do this for you if you want me to. And they yeah. were like, Oh, thank God. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, she came in and told me exactly what happened. And I, I remember that conversation very specifically, which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, so yeah. since you remember it so specifically, how did you feel? Like, were you confused? Were you? I was so, I just kept being like, okay, okay. Like she would say like, this happened uh-huh. and then this happened. And I'd uh-huh. be like, okay, okay. And I would just sort of like, take it in. Yeah. I hear you. Okay great. And then she told me that they tried everything possible, but they couldn't avoid the hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. And I started like, I wasn't bought. I just like tear, just like, I remember it just like streaming down my face. And, but I was like in awe of the situation. I was like, this is crazy. And I'm just like sitting here right now. Yeah. Like having you in a different hospital, like five days later, how many days, like, oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. When you were talking about pictures and videos and stuff, you said you really appreciated that 
first video or the first time you seeing your son and the videos that were taken, do you personally feel like first I want to ask where there are a lot of pictures and videos and stuff taken. And did you feel like that was very helpful for your healing or did you feel like that was not so helpful or kind of a mix of both? I have a shared album of over a thousand pictures and videos from my time in the hospital. And it has helped me in ways that I cannot explain. My family also kept a log to the best of their ability. Every single survivor of not even AFE, but birth trauma and sort of these very severe physically traumatic complications has said they wish they had more pictures. They wish they had. No one has ever said to me, I wish they wouldn't have taken them because you can always delete them. You know, you can save them for your loved one. If they're like, no, 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 please delete that. Then you delete them. No harm done. But I can tell you they are not remembering meeting your baby for the first time is horrendous. Being able to have a video where I can see myself meeting my baby for the first time is amazing. Yeah. Something that you probably cling onto so tightly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's important to note too. And when you say that it's important to anyone who's having any sort of birth trauma, that pictures and videos speak volumes. I mean, I'm thinking about when a mom when we have moms who come in and have stillbirths, the importance, like that is literally on our checklist and it has bullet, lots of bullet points underneath, like take these pictures, take this, you know, do this for the pictures. And it's like pictures and videos speak volumes when we talk about trauma. Yeah. Because you're right. You think in the time you do you think the moment it might, it seems weird to want to capture this moment, but afterwards you're right. Everyone is saying, I wish there was more. I wish there was more. Yeah, it does seem, again, I'm so grateful to my family for, I actually think my best friend, who's like my sister, who was there this whole time, her mom had read on the AFE Foundation website that it's really important to take pictures and videos. Oh, I'm glad it's on there. Yeah. And that's the only reason my family did. I was going to say, we have a good birth trauma article and I'm thinking yeah. now in there, I want to add it to that article for things yeah. that loved ones can do to support someone going through birth trauma. And that brings me to that conversation too. Do you have any advice for someone who maybe just went through, cause we have moms who have already given birth. Now we have a lot of moms yeah. listening who, you know, haven't who are first time moms and haven't given birth, but any advice for survivors of birth trauma of things that, and you can talk about more things of what you did too. We can get into this conversation of things that you've done personally to try and heal. But a lot of the times people who have experienced birth trauma are just trying to find like solidarity with others who like, what did you do? What can I do? You know, what can I read? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So much on this. Yeah, I think there's a lot that birth trauma survivors can do for themselves once they're in a place. Like that's also the other thing. It depends on, like I was not in a place to do anything for about two months, but I did actually get into therapy the week that I was discharged. And if there's one thing that I can recommend, it is therapy. No matter how good you feel when you're immediately discharged. I was on cloud nine because I had just survived the unsurvivable and I was going to have the most wonderful, miraculous life of my, you know entire existence. And I, as a therapist myself, I was like, this is a pretty messed up situation. We should just like, yeah, Yeah. get in there just in case. And 
that definitely saved me. Um, so definitely getting therapeutic support is a big one and finding a community. Yeah. Finding other people who have gone through the same experience or it doesn't have to be the same exact, but a similar experience to you. And there are so many Facebook groups for different, oh my gosh. yes, yeah, birth trauma complications and things like that. There's a maternal near miss group. That's wonderful. There's like a hysterectomy after childbirth group. There's like wow. lots yeah. and lots of amazing groups out there. And I highly recommend finding other people who just get what you're going through. Yeah, um, no, totally. And in terms of feeling, I think the thing that really would have helped me in the beginning is knowing that all feelings are okay. So all feelings are valid. All feelings are valid and you get to feel your feelings. And if I had felt my feelings without so much guilt in the beginning, Mm -hmm. I think that would have helped me a lot. So I survived something that a lot of people don't survive. And I felt like the only thing I was allowed to feel was gratitude, Mm -hmm. right? I'm only Mm -hmm. allowed to be grateful. All these people are telling me like, oh my God, you shouldn't be alive and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, a month after me, another woman, same age, same onset, which is rare of her AFE at 10 centimeters, mm-hmm. same great, not same hospital, but a very similar hospital, great hospital died of an AFE. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how am I going to sit here and be sad and angry about what happened to me when she didn't get to survive, but we can do both. Yeah. Right. Like I can be so grateful that yes. I survived and also so angry and sad that this happened to me. Yes. And it took me some months to learn that. And I think that would have been validating and helpful for me to know from the start for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Feelings can coexist. All feelings can coexist. Yeah. 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 I love that. Well, going on the conversation of birth trauma, do you have any advice for the moms that are still pregnant and maybe concerned about having birth trauma or concerned about having these complications happen? Maybe it's not an AFE, but maybe it's something else and just anxious about something happening during their birth. That's going to be traumatic. Do you have any advice for them of maybe prevention or anything like that? Yeah. So we can control the controllables. That's what I like to say. And so we can prepare to the the best of our ability. We can have a birth plan, which is really, really important. And also understand that our birth plans don't always come to fruition. And sort of having expectations around like, this is what I want. And this is what I desire. And I'm going to do everything in my power to set myself up for that with the team that I choose and the advocacy that I have for myself. And maybe if you're able to hire a doula or a support person, that's great too. And at the end of the day, knowing that sometimes there are some things that happen that can't be prevented Mm -hmm. and it will still be okay though. And knowing that I think being aware that birth trauma is a thing helps you plan postpartum and mm-hmm. God, I wish I had had a postpartum support plan knowing that like, okay, I'm going to need to call a therapist. I'm going to need this sort of help. Hey, if something happens that keeps me in the hospital longer, who's going to help my partner take care of the baby? Good point. And no one likes to think about these things. And I totally understand why, mm-hmm. but if we do think about these things, we have a plan in place. God forbid something does happen and yep. most likely it won't. And you'll be all good. And you'll just have planned in a way that you don't need to use it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I love that. Well, I want to kind of end the discussion on two parts. I want to hear the rest of your story and kind of you being discharged. And then I want to also talk about some stats and some numbers regarding AFE and like how often, because I know people are wondering how can this actually happen to me? Like what are, you know, and all of that. So let's talk about you getting discharged and then we can, then we can go into that conversation. 
Yeah. So the original plan, my when I was first transferred, the team had told my family that I'd probably be in the hospital for a couple of months mm-hmm. and that I would then transfer to a rehab and then I'd be able to go home. And so when I woke up in the CTICU, then I was extubated, all of that stuff. Once I was a week in, so a week from my AFE, I was transferred down from the CTICU to like the regular cardiac ICU. And I had really difficulty moving. I was really struggling in a lot of pain. And they were talking about discharging to rehab and what that would look like and that it would be in a few weeks. And I would probably go from the ICU to mother baby and be on mother baby for a while, all Mm -hmm. that. And then I honestly don't really know what happened. But a few days later, nine days after my AFE, I was just like, I feel like I can walk and I'm going to walk a lot and there's some stairs and I feel like I can do the stairs and I'm going to do the stairs. And so I was just like walking up and down stairs and they were like, yeah, you're not going to qualify for rehab. You're going to go home. And so, yeah. So I was discharged after two weeks, 14 days after my AFE. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. And I can't explain it. I, I really don't know why no one really can. I think I was young. That was helpful. And remind our listeners, how old is your son now? Like, when did this happen? He is a little over two. Okay. So about two years ago. Yeah, about two years ago. Wow. I do want to ask you too, before we get into the stat discussion, have you had any long-term effects from this? Not really, which is rare. I want to also make sure people know like the typical things that happen with AFEs. And typically there are long-term effects from AFEs. The only thing that I had was because of all the surgery on my abdomen, I did have like a massive incisional hernia. And so a year, exactly a year after my AFE, actually the same week, I returned to my hospital to have a major surgery. That was probably a lot of feelings. Yeah, it was. Wow. I mean, big shout out to my team. It was during COVID. So I wasn't allowed to have anyone come with me. Oh, Oh. yeah. So my OB came and sat with me in pre-op. My nurses came and sat with me in pre-op. My trauma surgeon did the surgery with a plastic surgeon and my anesthesiologist who saved my life. Like they all were like, we're doing this and you're going to be fine and you're going to come out of it. So they had to open me back fully up, but they did a great job. And that was like a little over a year ago. And that was the last thing that I've had to sort of minus obviously the hysterectomy, but yeah. And you said you have, you know, just memory loss in general, which is something that I know that that happens definitely is a long-term effect. Remind me, you had memory loss even a few days before your infection. Yeah, I had like, I had retrograde amnesia. We think it's a combination of Mm -hmm. medication, trauma, and hypoxia. But yeah, so I don't remember the hospital stay at all. I don't remember the induction at all. Wow. You woke up basically in the ICU and you're like, the last thing I remember is getting my nails done or when, you know, whenever that was. So yes. And also there was some other weird stuff, which was definitely trauma related. Mm -hmm. I didn't remember when I first woke up, I didn't remember a single OB appointment in my entire nine months. Whoa. I didn't remember what the OB office looked like. I didn't remember a single appointment, which is weird. And then I did, of course, my memory started coming back. We had also moved a month before I had Cal and I couldn't remember a new house at all until my husband sent me a video. And then I remembered. Was that scary to you? Yes, it was terrifying. terrifying. Yes. And when I first woke up, I don't remember this, but my mom showed me a picture of Cal and it was when he first was born and he had like leads on him. Mm -hmm. 
And for some reason, and Steve, my husband wasn't in the room. And so I was like, oh my God, he died. And my mom was like, no, he he didn't work. No, no. And I was like, they got in a car accident. So I had like thought we had all gotten in a car accident and like Steve and the baby died. Like there's a lot of sort of ICU stuff that happens with that too, with medication. But yeah, that was quickly rectified when they brought him in and I got to meet him. Wow. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, let's transition the discussion about some stats with AFEs. So first of all, I know everybody listening just wants to know like how rare even is this? Like how many women does this even happen to a year? Yeah. So it's about a hundred in the U S Okay. the instance rate is one in 40,000 births. And there's about 4 million births in the U S each year. It's a little lower now we've seen a drop, but typically around 4 million births and a hundred of those will be AFEs about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's very, very, very rare. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say a hundred out of like, think about, like you said, think about how many babies are born. Like that's not, that's, you know, that's not nothing, but it's not a substantial amount. So you're, so if people listening are, cause I, the tough part, and you know, this, cause you're out there too, is like, you want to tell your story and you want to bring awareness. And this is what I struggle too with a lot of times with my platform is like, I want to bring awareness to these things, but I also don't want to scare the crap out of people. Yeah. 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 I really, I really struggle with this. And I, I understand it. And the first thing I will say is the best we can do is make sure we have a care team around us that knows what they're doing. Yeah. Because then you're setting yourself up for success. Beyond that, especially with AFE, you can't do anything. You can't. It's terrible and awful. And I know that. It's terrifying. You can't do anything. And my stance, and this is a strong stance, but I stand behind it, is that I am willing to scare a lot of people if it means saving the life of just one person. And totally agree. like I've received a message from nurses on TikTok saying we were slow one night, we were looking through, we saw your story, we decided to brush up on AFE and we had an AFE the next week and we saved her. And I'm that's, like, that's, that's all I need. That's yeah, amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I feel like I'm much more brushed on up on it now. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but I feel like I'm much more brushed up on it. I was starting to go into it with you previously, but I have not had any personal history with taking care of a mom while I was a nurse with an AFE. But I will say, well, while I was in nursing school on my clinicals, it was at a very small hospital. This is what they told me. I mean, that she had an AFE and they said that she was having a C-section and it happened during her C-section. And all of a sudden her canisters, like it was like blood, blood. There's, you know, usually four canisters, suction canisters, you need a lot of suction when you have a, you know, have surgery. And a lot of times you're just getting amniotic fluid, a little bit of blood comes here and maybe you fill, you know, half of one or maybe one. And all of a sudden it was like canister full, canister full, canister full. She started just like bleeding, 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 bleeding. And she survived she was fine. Her baby was fine. So that was one. And then we had one happen at a sister hospital two ish years ago. And she was walking in the hallway and just collapsed and she survived her baby survived and she survived, but it's like, it's just these random, super crazy random occurrences. And it's so scary, but it just, it happens. Yeah, it does. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right, Kaylee. Well, thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story. This is just so incredible for those listening who want to keep in touch with you and follow your story. Can you share your social media, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you're most active? Yeah, it's at the birth trauma underscore mama. And that's for both Instagram and TikTok. Cool. Cool. Love it. We'll leave all that stuff in the show notes too, for people to take a look. Thank you so much. This was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place.